This week, PetSmart lenders organize on Chewy Dividend, Senveo settles with Brigade, Windstream nets creditor approval to potentially issue junior lien debt. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Stephen Opper, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, senior distressed debt legal analyst Patrick Mohan sat down with Sushil Karpalani, chair of the Bankruptcy and Restructuring Group at Quinn Emanuel, to discuss the evolution of bankruptcy safe harbors after the Supreme Court's decision in merit management and their potential impact on litigation trusts and recoveries for creditors. It's Sunday, June 10th. PetSmart this week embarked on a potentially controversial series of transactions, announcing that on June 1st, it placed one-fifth of the outstanding common stock of its subsidiary, online retailer Chewy.com, in the hands of its parent and another 16.5% into a wholly owned unrestricted subsidiary. According to a disclosure on its data site, PetSmart declared a dividend in the form of 20% of Chewy to parent Argos Holdings, which subsequently made a dividend of that stock to its parent company. PetSmart also invested 16.5% of Chewy Common as a capital contribution to a wholly owned, unrestricted subsidiary of PetSmart. As a result, Chewy is no longer a wholly owned subsidiary of PetSmart, and according to the document reviewed by Reorg, is no longer a guarantor of PetSmart's term loan or senior notes. Chewy does remain a restricted subsidiary under PetSmart's credit agreement and bond indentures, as well as a guarantor of PetSmart's ABL facility. The company, quote, continues to actively monitor its capital structure and will continue to evaluate and potentially pursue additional strategic transactions and opportunities to extend its maturities, reduce its leverage, and invest in and grow its business. Reorg learned that a group of PetSmart lenders have organized and selected Arnold and Porter K. Scholler as legal counsel after holding pitches Wednesday. The group, according to sources, is preparing to send a letter to term loan administrative agent Citibank requesting more information about the company's recently disclosed transaction in order to determine whether the transfer is allowed under the company's debt documents and whether any events of default have occurred. Sources indicate that Citi has not yet authorized the dividend and investment of Chewy shares. Citi recently hired Latham & Watkins to review the transaction, out of the sources. Not to be lost, PetSmart also reported first quarter sales of $2.5 billion, an increase of 39% over the year-ago period. But excluding Chewy, which was purchased in April of last year for $3.3 billion, net sales totaled $1.8 billion, a decrease of half a percent. Senveo reached a global settlement with the UCC and the First Lien Committee, and a separate settlement with Brigade Capital Management ahead of the company's disclosure statement hearing this week. The debtors subsequently on Thursday obtained approval of their disclosure statement. The plan includes an approximately 44% estimated recovery for First Lien note holders, based on a $550 million to $650 million total enterprise value range. Unsecured creditors, including general unsecured creditors and secondly note holders, are estimated to receive a 1.5% recovery from a $7 million cash pool, increased from $1.5 million under the prior plan. Among other things, the global settlement includes assumption of the obligations in connection with the pension plans and assumption of unexpired collective bargaining agreements and a decrease in new second lien debt to $100 million from at least $200 million. Second lien claim holders will be granted rights to receive and retain proceeds of cash collateral under the plan, notwithstanding the applicability of the second lien intercreditor agreement. 
The debtors will pay $1.25 million for Brigade's professional fees through the plan's effective date, and the payment of the second lien notes trustee up to $400,000, in exchange for which Brigade will sign on to the RSA and join the first lien noteholder group and the steering committee. The court-appointed examiner was Sushil Kerpalani, who will be interviewed by our own Patrick Mohan later in this podcast. Kerpalani filed his report concluding that at all times, the investigations by the debtors and the unsecured creditors committee were conducted, quote, independently and in good faith. Kerpalani identified $5.4 million of potential viable claims against insiders in his report. Windstream received the necessary consents to amend its first lien notes due 2025 and also announced that it obtained an amendment to its senior secured credit facility. In the company's original release, it said, quote, if the proposed amendments in the credit facility amendment become operative and effective, the company may explore various financing alternatives to improve our capital structure, including issuing new junior lien secured indebtedness in one or more series of tranches or offering to exchange new junior lien secured indebtedness for one or more existing series of debt. During Windstream's earnings call for the first quarter of 2018, management noted that they have been paying attention to recent transactions by competitor Frontier Communications and were considering a similar transaction. In March, Frontier issued second lien notes and commenced a tender offer for near-dated unsecured notes. Windstream completed a number of transactions to push out maturities last year on its almost $6.2 billion capital structure, but failed to complete an exchange of 2023 notes earlier this year. The company has almost $500 million of unsecured notes that are due in 2020. On Tuesday, the agents for the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico and for COFINA announced that they had reached an agreement in principle to settle the ongoing Commonwealth COFINA dispute. The agents have asked the court to hold its decision on the motions for summary judgment in the dispute in abeyance for 60 days until August 4th. The settlement contemplates COFINA receiving 53.65% of the yearly scheduled pledged sales tax base amount, beginning with payments made on July 1st, and 100% of the cash held in trust at Bank of New York Mellon as of June 30th. The Commonwealth would receive 46.35% of the yearly scheduled pledged sales tax base amount, beginning with payments made on July 1st, any residual of the 5.5% sales and use tax, and the additional 4.5% sales and use tax surcharge. In connection with the settlement, the agents noted that there are, quote, various conditions precedent and subsequent that may prevent the settlement from ever becoming effective. Also in Puerto Rico's Title III cases, the First Circuit held argument on Tuesday in connection with two pending appeals, ultimately reserving decision on both matters. The first appeal was that of the ad hoc group of PREPA bondholders and several bond insurers, and related to Judge Swain's September 14th opinion and order denying the appellant's stay relief motion. The First Circuit also heard argument on Biaje Investments' appeal of Judge Swain's September 2017 opinion denying its request for a preliminary injunction. On Thursday, the Promisa Oversight Board posted its version of a revised compliant budget for fiscal 2019 after determining that the latest draft resolutions submitted by the Puerto Rico government on June 1 did not reflect a compliant budget. Two of the proposed budget resolutions also included a variety of reporting, reserve, and other controls, creating obligations with which several of Puerto Rico's governmental entities would be required to comply. In a statement, Christian Sobrino, Government Ricardo Rosseo's representative on the board, said that, 
quote, we are studying the submitted budget and will express our position in the public hearings on it. Turning to Venezuela, on Tuesday, the Organization of American States, or OAS, passed a resolution condemning the situation in Venezuela, rejecting the recent presidential election in the country and calling for humanitarian assistance and the restoration of dialogue between the government and other political actors. The resolution also contemplates the suspension of Venezuela's membership from the organization through the application of Articles 20 and 21 of the organization's Inter-American Democratic Charter. However, sources told Reorg, given Tuesday's vote turnout, in which only 19 members supported the resolution condemning Venezuela, the possibility of suspending the Maduro regime from the OAS could be even thinner. Describing the difficulty in getting a vote to suspend, sources said that the close commercial ties of most Caribbean countries with Venezuela on, quote, subsidized oil through Petrocaribe makes this group a supporter of Venezuela within the organization. Other top-read stories of the week were, one, Murray Energy enters into refinancing transactions with support from greater than majority of 11.25% note holders, term loan lenders. Two, Avaya to issue $300 million in convertible notes in private offering. And three, Mossi and Gisolfi seeks to dismiss Luxembourg debtors' Chapter 11 cases. And now we'll pass it over to Jim Holloway for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thank you, Stephen, and greetings from Houston, everybody. It's good to be back with you all after a couple weeks R&R. Uh, This week, most of the major events are in the courthouse, starting with, on Monday, June 11th, the auction of Toys Delaware's real estate assets, and in Puerto Rico, oral arguments in the Court of Federal Claims. On Tuesday, June 12th, the early consent deadline for Concordia, which was extended last week, the company does have, as we reported last week, the requisite creditor approvals to proceed with its recapitalization. And June 12th is also the day that President Trump and Supreme Leader and Chairman of the Workers' Party of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, meet in Singapore. Now, as I understand it, Chairman Kim will be staying in the Fullerton Hotel, formerly the General Post Office of Singapore. Now, that's one of those glorious British Empire buildings that you'll find across that part of the world. I stayed there once many years ago, and what I remember the strongest are the warnings against bringing durian into your room. Durian being a fruit with a notoriously unpleasant aroma. It's also banned in Singapore's mass transit system, so now you know not to do that if you go there. Anyways, Wednesday, June 13th, the bids notice for the aforementioned auction of Toys Delaware's real estate assets and a hearing in Claire's related to Oak Tree's motion to modify the marketing process. Thursday, June 14th, the Supreme Court has scheduled a conference on whether to review the Second Circuit's opinion on Momentive's make-hole. And Friday, June 15th, an omnibus hearing in First Energy and the expiration of the exclusive plan filing period in Pacific Drilling. And that's all from Houston. Back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. I'm going to hand it off to Patrick Mohan now, who's with Sushil Kripalani of Quinn Emanuel, for a discussion on the evolution of bankruptcy safe harbors after the Supreme Court's ruling in merit management and how litigation trusts and creditor recoveries may be affected. Hi, my name is Patrick Mohan, and I'm a senior legal analyst with Reorg Research. Today, we have as a guest um, a special one for me, because I remember when he joined Quinn Emanuel, uh, Sushil Kerpalani, a partner in their structuring group. Um, so today, and also we're going to talk about uh, bankruptcy safe harbors, particularly Section 546E, and the developments uh, with merit management, the recent Supreme Court decision. 
So welcome, Sushil. Thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, well, first, let me give a brief introduction for Sushil. Um, he's had a number of notable representations. He served as a court-appointed examiner, a mediator, particularly in Dynegy. He's also represented creditors' committees. Um, examples are Radio Shack and Sim Group. He's appeared in Lehman Brothers, WAMU, Solutia. Representing, he's also represented boards of directors, equity sponsors in cases like Sabine. Um, and he was recently appointed uh, as the examiner in the Senvio Chapter 11 cases. In addition to his broad experience in international insolvencies, Sushil has also been active in municipal restructurings, including in connection with Jefferson County's Chapter 9 case, and he currently serves as counsel for the Cofina Senior Bondholders Coalition in Puerto Rico's debt restructuring. In connection with Puerto Rico, he also testified before Congress regarding the fairness of the restructuring title of PROMESA, which was ultimately enacted in law, into law. So, so Sushil... We're talking about the safe harbors. Um, so we'll start out kind of just with an introduction. What is the safe harbor under Section 546E of the Bankruptcy Code, and, and when does it really come into play? Um, well, just like the name suggests, safe harbor generally refers to a place where there would be no liability for a particular party or a particular transaction, and Congress makes policy choices sometimes and decides to exempt certain types of transactions from scrutiny or from liability. Specifically, 546E uh, in the Bankruptcy Code um, is designed to insulate liability for certain types of avoidance actions. Um, in, under the Bankruptcy Code, you can claw back transfers that were uh, made pre-bankruptcy, either as a preference or as a fraudulent transfer or other types of transfers. And there are state law analogs to those same types of remedies. And so Congress enacted Section 546E um, as a way to insulate certain uh, enumerated transactions or parties from liability there. Okay, great. And and so like what we've seen with uh, Section 546E, um, it's popped up in a number of Chapter 11 cases, particularly in, in, in recent years. Um, I think some of the examples, we've seen it in different contexts as well. I think it showed up in Lehman and Madoff and then Tribune, Lyondell, uh, I think physiotherapy uh, and, and merit management, which is the subject of the Supreme Court's decision. Um, why? How, how is it kind of used or what, in the context of these Chapter 11 cases and, and what type of litigation do we usually see the, the safe harbor pop up in? OK, so in various business failures, um, there not always, but sometimes have been massive value transfers that went out. Sometimes they went to shareholders, sometimes they went to creditors, sometimes they went to third parties. And so when a company files for bankruptcy, often the creditors, um, or if there's a trustee or an examiner appointed, then those parties would look into how do we get some of that money back? And the way you get that money back, generally speaking, is through the theory of fraudulent transfer. Preferences have also been um, used. And for insiders, you can look back a year for preferences. And sometimes those can be quite valuable. So it's really an asset generating tool um, to use litigation this way. The goal of bankruptcy is not just equality of distribution for creditors, but also a fresh start for the debtor and also maximizing the value of the pie. So to maximize the value of the pie, you need sometimes lawsuits and fraudulent transfers and preferences are kind of the, the ABCs of bankruptcy um, asset generation through litigation. So that's how it comes up. 
Right. And, and sometimes this can represent a significant amount of value, right, for distributions. I mean, you could be talking in like hundreds of millions of dollars or billions. Oh, absolutely. I remember one case, which was uh, Refco, um, where I represented the creditors committee. When the company filed, it was a, a commodities broker from Chicago. When the company filed, the bonds traded at 10 cents on the dollar. Um, within a year, because of fraudulent transfer and preference claims um, in particular, um, a fraudulent transfer claim uh, against Bawag Bank uh, and a preference claim against the Sphinx Funds, those two lawsuits alone took the bonds from $0.10 cents to $0.85 cents on the dollar within about 10 months of the filing. And ultimately, Refco creditors got paid in full from a colossal fraud, all because of these types of theories. So that's one example. You've got multiple examples in the leverage buyout context as well. Okay. And so, I mean, I think this really has been on people's radar, but particularly when the Supreme Court um, accepted the merit case, and then when it decided the merit case, um, it kind of became an even bigger issue, I feel. You know, people have written a lot about it. Um, but it's really it's a game changer. I think I think you would describe the decision. So maybe we could talk about first kind of what happened in merit and then we can talk about really how it's changed things. Sure. Um, so let's talk about where it fits in the in the broader scope of safe harbors. Um, there are areas of dispute that have kind of uh, organically grown in the context of the safe harbors. Um, people bring these lawsuits and after the lawsuits are brought, defendants look for clever ways to say they fit within the safe harbor. One of those ways was dealt with in merit management, and there's another way that's still out there um, that will impact the Tribune case um, quite drastically. But the important thing about merit is it doesn't just solve the first category. There's language in there that suggests it might also touch on how the second category of issues should be solved. So that first category is what we call the the conduit or financial intermediary um, issue. The way the statute is written, it's written so broadly, it says that a transfer to or by or for the benefit of a financial institution, read that as bank, um, can't be challenged. It's safe harbored. And so what a lot of defendants have been doing, even if they themselves are not banks, they would say, well, the money passed through a bank in order to get to me. And frankly, a lot of corporate and finance lawyers for the last 10 years have been advising clients when they're entering into transactions on the front end, stick a bank in between. Because if you do that, you're probably going to avail yourself of the safe harbors. And what Justice Sotomayor said for the unanimous court in merit management was, no, that's not the way it works. Let's look at what the transfer um, is that the trustee or the bankruptcy representative, it could be a creditor's committee or a debtor in possession or a trustee, what are they trying to avoid? And in, in merit, what they were trying to avoid was the payment by the debtor to the ultimate recipient, the shareholder. They were not trying to avoid the transfer by the debtor to the bank that was the first stop in the overarching transfer to the shareholder. And so Justice Sotomayor told us, don't look at you know these intermediate steps if that's not what the trustee is suing for. And um, there's a lot in that case that, that it's quite interesting um, the way she attacked the issue. And it's different than the way a lot of circuit courts had looked at the issue. Right. And so so after after merit, I actually, and so you were talking about the second issue. Um, I think you were talking about merit touching on it and then the language kind of dealing with one of the other safe harbor issues. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. The other safe harbor issue has to deal with state law preemption. So we have a dual system of government. 
right? There's the federal government and there's the states. And we don't all think about this in our daily lives, especially since the federal government has grown so much larger since the New Deal. But the federal government was actually the inferior government at the time that this country was founded. And the superior sovereigns were the states. But a legacy of that is that state law continues to govern and reign supreme unless federal law specifically displaces it or specifically preempts it, which is the legal term of art. We all know under the Constitution that federal law is supreme over state law, but there's no presumption that the federal government was trying to displace state law. So the first question is, how do you know whether federal law is displacing state law or not? This is really important for the fraudulent transfer context because fraudulent transfers were originally creatures of state law. They go back to the Statute of Elizabeth. And every single state in the United States has a fraudulent transfer statute to protect creditors. And what courts had, have been holding and have held, including in Tribune and in Semcrude and others, is that once a company files for bankruptcy the bankruptcy fraudulent transfer laws apply and the state law remedies are out the window. And although this court, this decision in merit management didn't touch on that particular issue, the way the court approached the problem suggests, at least to me, that the state law is actually not preempted by the federal law. And what happened with Tribune is the Supreme Court made a a recommendation, if you will, that you may want to ask the Second Circuit to revoke its mandate and ask the district court to take another look at Tribune um, while we're still sitting on whether or not we're going to consider it. So that's kind of a signal that it does, in fact, touch on some of the reasoning behind Tribune. Right. And that's a really unique situation, I think, with Tribune, you know, um, you know, following Supreme Court cases where you see that uh, I think here they issued the order or they, they, they ruled that they didn't have a quorum and they kind of sent then they were going to send it back. But I think you're right. They're, they're sending signals saying, like, there's an issue that you, you might want to think about looking at this. Right. And and so and that's kind of a unique position. I think the relationship between the Supreme Court and here. Um, is it the Second Circuit, right? So, and and they recently, I think the the Second Circuit, did they recall it? Yes, actually, the Second Circuit recalled the mandate on May fifteenth, two thousand eighteen. Uh, two of the Supreme Court justices in the beginning of April had recommended that the parties seek that relief, and they did so. Um, and the Second Circuit has ordered that the mandate in the case is recalled in anticipation of further panel review. So they definitely are taking uh, their cue from the Supreme Court. Right. And, and I think really kind of touching on the language from you're talking about the language of merit and how important it is or kind of the, the idea. I think we were talking about those signals. Um, and, and, and so what is that second you were talking, you previewed kind of that second issue that it's the Tribune issue. Um, I can, can you talk about that? I think it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, look, the 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 issue was not directly in front of the Supreme Court in merit. But what what's important to see is how did the Supreme Court approach the problem? There, the reason that the circuit courts to date, and a lot of bankruptcy and district courts, have said that the safe harbors essentially occupy the field to get rid of all of these types of fraudulent transfer lawsuits, whether they're brought under federal bankruptcy law or state creditors' rights laws, is because the courts have 
including the Second Circuit, made broad pronouncements on what was congressional intent. What was Congress trying to solve for since 1978 when they started with these safe harbors? I mean, to be clear, the safe harbors have been around since 78. They were amended in 82, again in 84, again in 1990, again in 2005, and again in 2006. Each time Congress expanded the safety of the safe harbors. So what courts have been doing is saying, let's look to what Congress is doing here. They're trying to tell us that as a policy matter, they are weighing the importance of safety and security in the financial markets as more important than giving creditors the ability to claw back money to get a recovery or an enhanced recovery. And what the Supreme Court's decision in Merit did, which is so critical, is it really tipped the scale the other way. It said, let's not look to what we think Congress intended. And this is Justice Sotomayor. And she's quoting from a treatise or an article written by Justice Scalia. Okay, so something very interesting about that, about the importance of textualism in a statute and basically says there's nothing in the statute that signals this sort of broad congressional policy intention to insulate every single thing that might touch a financial institution and every single transfer that might touch a um, a securities contract. And so in doing so, and the way she went through the statute, it really does signal to me, at least, that the presumption against preemption of state law by federal courts, which is the law of the land, should absolutely apply in the fraudulent transfer area. And these types of tribune creditor lawsuits should continue to exist, notwithstanding a bankruptcy. Right. And I, and you mentioned it earlier, too. I think it's very significant that this was a unanimous decision. You know, we don't I mean, that's doesn't happen all too often. And, and, and especially in recent years is, you know, kind of you have a divided kind of court. I mean, it's a unanimous decision. I think it's very important. It's a unanimous decision after numerous adjournments of whether or not to consider these types of issues. And there have been multiple opportunities for the Supreme Court to consider the safe harbors. And this was the one they picked. And they didn't have to go into kind of the structure of the code. And it was the way the decision reads in terms of the structure that I found particularly interesting. What Justice Sotomayor says is, um, this is on page four, I think, of the of the slip opinion. She goes through it and says, the code sets out a number of limits on the exercise of the trustee's avoiding powers. And she says, see, for example, section 546A, which sets the statute of limitations for avoidance actions, and then 546C through D, which are those policy-based exceptions to avoiding powers, which are the ones that were really at issue there. And then 548A2, which deals with cha- charitable contributions. And why, why is that important? 546A, the statute of limitations, there are several courts, including high courts of the states, Supreme Courts of the states, that have held once the statute of limitations on the trustee's ability to bring a fraudulent transfer claim has run, it basically goes back to the state law creditors, and they can bring the action now. That's significant, because what it means is that congressional grant to a trustee to allow the trustee to bring a fraudulent transfer for the benefit of the entire estate, you avoid the whole transfer for the benefit of the entire estate. That does not occupy the field. What it does, I think, is it temporarily puts a hold on creditors' rights to compete 
with the bankruptcy estate in trying to go after the transferee. But once the two years is up, then structurally speaking, there's no reason why creditors' rights are somehow preempted or vanished. And she didn't say that, but she cited 546A, and I thought that was important. So if you're thinking about this decision from you know further away than really right up, up close to it, what it's saying is read the text, don't imply or read broad policies into the bankruptcy code that aren't in the text, and look at these particular portions of the text that I'm pointing you to some of them use language that don't exist in the safe harbors, such as notwithstanding any other law, right. no one can bring this type of a transaction. So when you read all those together, that's why I think it touches on the category two of uh, of safe harbored uh, lawsuits. Right. And I think it's good because you kind of see this as an opinion, maybe that, again, is setting the stage and, and then it's followed up by the, their decision um on on the quorum and, and sending Tribune back or suggesting that maybe they take a second look. Um, and so now following merit, I mean, kind of let's we can kind of let's shift to, well, what's next? You know, as far as, you know, are there ripple effects of this decision? I mean, you've been talking about them, but I think it's, it's important as we as we talked about earlier, the value of this litigation to a bankruptcy case and the potential value and kind of what it means um, for pending lawsuits and future lawsuits. Um, and, you know, do you think it creates any sort of it gives a, additional leverage to, say, a litigation trustee? There's no question that it does. Um, it's a good time to be a litigation trustee. Let's put it that way. Um, I think it's a good time to be a creditor's rights um, lawyer or investor. Um, there are a lot of sophisticated investors out there that actually look for these types of opportunities. I think a new door opened, or at least it's clear that that door is not closed. And I think what what people will say um, is that this will have negative ripple effects on the industry overall. I disagree. I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think there's ever been evidence that there was broad ripple effects to shareholders that they might get sued one day if they participated in a leveraged buyout and took cash out from a company. The the ripple effects that Congress seemed to have been concerned about, you know, dealt more with commodities trades um, originally, and really for commodities brokers, who really were mere conduits, and the idea that they could somehow be liable for being caught in the middle Right. of a transaction is what I think they were trying to solve, and they used pretty loose language. And then after long-term capital management's failure in late 90s, 1998 or so, the expanse of we have to make sure that there's no ripple effect on the markets because there were so many back-to-back -back transactions and counterparties who themselves have um, creditors or customers relying on their financial wherewithal. Those types of risks are really not at play at all when you're talking about a fraudulent transfer, a shareholder receiving an unfair sum where creditors are left holding the bag. I don't ever see that being a real issue. So I do think you're going to find some arguments about ripple effects negatively um, being you know, put out there probably from people um, who, are, who are looking for some sort of a free pass, um, if you will. Uh, and but but I don't think you're going to see any negative ripple effects. I do think there will be greater interest um, in the creditor community to try to go and look at getting money back for the benefit of creditors, and people won't be discouraged anymore from not even bothering because a bank happened to touch the transfer at some point. 
Right. And I, I think, we, you know, kind of looking at this with the evolution of something like litigation finance and how the, the growth of using sort of a litigation trust, um, it, it's, it's interesting. And, and even after the decision beyond Tribune, um, something like Physio, right, and, and where you see right away that the decision in pending cases, you know, this decision is, then is coming up immediately. And then you're trying, you know, parties are trying to figure out make sense of it in this, you know, these active disputes. Um, well, let's talk about um, kind of real world for a second and away from acad- academia. Um, how many cases, mega cases, actually go to trial in the fraudulent transfer context? I think uh, probably since reorg has been around, there's, there's at most three that I can think of that are big name cases on fraudulent transfers. I can think of TUSA, I can think of ASARCO, and I think of Lion Del Bissell. These went to trial. The lion's share of fraudulent transfer cases settle, like much litigation settles. And I think what this case, this decision is doing is it's saying more of those cases will now settle. And I think there'll be more value generated for creditors as a result of that. And I'll tell you why. The safe harbors, the way they had been interpreted, especially on this financial intermediary, financial participant, financial institution type of issue had been kind of a a showstopper for a lot of bankruptcy estates. You know, companies would file, massive value transfers may have gone out the door, and if you're representing a creditors committee, the first thing you look at is, let me see all of the lists of the transfers that went out the door. It's required, right, when a company files for bankruptcy to file the statement of financial affairs, and that's where you look to, um, you know, even as a baby lawyer, um, that's where you look to see if there's any value. And you're always concerned, used to be concerned, if it was through some sort of a banking institution, well, then it's a showstopper. There's not much we can do about it. We're never going to see that money again. And so a lot of cases were never brought. This will stop. Now everyone will realize that just because cash happened to touch a bank in between, it doesn't mean that there's no recovery available. It means you need to sue the transferee that got the cash. And if that cash, the transferee is not a protected party, which most of them will not be, then that value could be available for creditors. And because there's no showstopper, and when I say showstopper, in legal terms, what I mean motion to dismiss that gets granted routinely, because there won't be that, folks will understand that there's going to be two major factual issues, solvency or capitalization, right? Those are two of the more common triggers for fraudulent transfer liability, other than Bernie Madoff's case, you don't see a lot of intentional fraudulent transfers. And the second is reasonably equivalent value. Was that given? Those are intensely factual issues. And intensely factual issues require trials. The fear of going to trial is what generates settlements, which is what generates money for creditors. So I think it's positive. Right, because especially the expense, you know, we talk about the expense of litigation um, and kind of if you're getting to that trial. I mean, Lyondell, how long did that trial last and i mean and, and again just not even everything that goes into the trial ahead of time and, and that cost over t- and also just the time itself of a trial because they don't happen overnight they don't happen overnight there's there's millions of pages that are produced there's usually more than a hundred depositions that are taken in these large cases Lyondell start to finish with something like nine years um, now there was a hiatus there because um, you know the judge had been retiring, and so the case kind of sat dormant a while. But you can't expect a case, even from start to finish, even if it moves as quickly as possible, to be over at the trial court level any sooner than a couple of years. 
And the amount of money that folks spend there could actually be redeployed, potentially, to reach settlements. And, uh, and I've seen that firsthand. And, and I think that that's going to be encouraged more and more. Um, you didn't ask this question yet, but there's, there is one potential uh, pitfall uh, in the decision. And what it is, is I don't think it's a pitfall as much as a, a byproduct of the way the statute is written. What's odd about it is it still protects certain parties from being liable. And while the Supreme Court said, look at the transfer that was made, meaning was it made to or by or for the benefit of a financial institution, which is a bank, and if not, then no problem. But there are other definitions. Financial institution is one. Financial participant is another. And a financial participant is a pretty broad term. And there are a lot of sophisticated non-bank institutions that would fit within that category. And what if one of those firms, let's say it's a big private equity shop, was also a financial participant because they entered into the requisite level of transactions over the course of a, a period of time that's required in the statute? Well, then they could be insulated from liability from a completely unrelated transfer, right? So just by way of example, if I'm a private equity firm and I have um, swap transactions that exceed the, the dollar amount um, in, the, in the statute to make me eligible to be a financial participant. And I do it in a completely separate line of business. I just have a bunch of things that I'm doing um, in the trading world, but I'm a financial participant now. And I receive a huge shareholder payout, okay, on account of something unrelated to the financial participant transactions that I'm engaged in. I'm an insulated party now um, under the statute. It probably requires some correction right. by, by Congress, um, but we all know, politically speaking, every time anyone talks of amending, I know this firsthand from PROMESA, which was not done under the Bankruptcy Clause, but under the Territories Clause, every time anybody in Washington talks about amending the Bankruptcy Code, everybody comes out of the woodwork with their own special interest changes. And so it's pretty hard to open the door to amendments to the bankruptcy code. Um, and so you may not see that fixed for a while. So that's an area for potential, I won't say mischief, but it's an area for potential exploration by sophisticated parties who know what they're doing. Right. Because you're, I mean, it's one, it'd be interesting to see if, they, if there was an examination of what hat they're wearing, right? Like, are you wearing your uh, financial participant hat or, you know, kind of just basically your natural characteristic. Right. But if you go back to what the Supreme Court just told us, right, in merit management, it says, don't look behind what the text says. So you might say that, Patrick, and I might agree with you. Um, but we all know that people do wear different hats. Um, I think the Ninth Circuit just came out with a decision lately um, that I think is inconsistent with the Second Circuit's decision um, in DBSD about uh, designating votes and, and basically said, it's irrelevant to me what, this is what the Ninth Circuit said, what hat a particular creditor happens to be wearing. People can wear multiple hat if it doesn't violate what the statute says. So similarly speaking, you might be a financial participant um, in one kind of classification of transactions having nothing to do with your potential exposure from, say, a leveraged buyout. Um, but nevertheless, you would fall within the statute. So I think a lot more thought needs to be given to how that statute gets ultimately fixed. Um, but it's still a step forward in terms of generating credit recoveries. 
Well, wonderful. Well, Sushil, um, I think this is going to wrap it up, but I just want to thank you so much for participating in today's podcast and talking about safe harbors. I think it's definitely something uh, we'll be watching closely, particularly with Tribune, to see what happens there. Um, but we just want to thank you again for, for coming on. It was a pleasure. Thanks. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Teresa Lee, and this has been The Week in Reorg. 